Welcome to Career Chinwags for the 21st Century. My name is Catherine Cunningham and I'm a career specialist who's worked with thousands of people by now. And so what I'm trying to do in this podcast series is tap into things that I've learned, things that I've come to understand over the years to help people better manage their careers and be happier at work. I'm taking a detour from the normal schedule. I have been doing a standard podcast and then I've been doing an MBTI podcast where we look at personality preferences and then I've been doing a short, sharp and shiny podcast. And I've been rotating through that way. But I've had uh, a couple of weeks ago a catastrophic upper leg break, which has really affected my mobility and my ability to get things done. And it's easier for me to do MBTI at the moment because I've done a lot of preparation work. They're all ready to go. So I'm taking a bit of a detour and I'm doing at least two MBTI on the roll and maybe a couple more. We'll wait and see. So I want to talk first about MBTI. I love it. It's my favorite work. And if I'm, if I'm working with somebody who's not happy at work and they only have one hour to work with me, I always recommend MBTI because if you can uncover your hardwired preferences rather than learned behavior or learned skills, you can use that information to decide what sort of work to do. So, for example, when I was at the bank, my spreadsheets were basically full of errors because I don't have natural attention to detail. Now, since then, I've learned attention to detail. Anybody who works with me on resumes gets pretty amazed at everything I spot. So, yes, I can have attention to detail, but do I want to be in a job all day where I have to absolutely focus on the task at hand and notice every slight little issue? I can tell you no. So where does it come from? I want to give you a little bit of theory before we start. I'm going to look at the four separate letters, M-B-T-I, one at a time, and that will help you understand it. And I'm going to start at the back. So the I stands for indicator. M-B-T-I is not a test. So if you go online and do one of those free versions, it's pretty well a waste of time. It is only an indicator. As an accredited practitioner, I'm bound by the ethics to only ever deliver the assessment with the debrief. Many times people think when they do the assessment that they're, for example, an ENTP, and it's only when you properly explore hardwired preferences in the debrief that they may, for example, come to understand they're not an extrovert, that was learned behaviour, they're actually fundamentally an introvert. So it's an indicator, not a test. The next letter I want to look at is the T. The T stands for type. And there's two issues to look at here. The first one is there are 16 types or 16 possibilities. And that is both the strength and weakness of MBTI. The strength is, from a career perspective, when people get their profile, it's like this aha light bulb moment. Often the comment is, I cannot believe this is so right. The level of detail, however, means that they forget their profile. So if I rang somebody up a year later and said, look, what's your profile? They'll probably get it wrong. For our career purposes, that doesn't matter. All we're trying to do with MBTI is stop for a minute in time, have a think about hardwired preferences, and use that information to make career decisions. And the other aspect of type is it's not tray or trait theory. So many instruments will measure you on a continuum. 
they'll say you're more like this than a particular cohort or less like this. As soon as you do Myers-Briggs, you will notice that it essentially forces you into one camp or the other. Now, Myers-Briggs is based on Carl Jung's work, and apparently Carl Jung said, of course, none of us are 100% introvert or 100% extrovert, for example, but you will notice it essentially wants you to come down on one side versus the other. And the final letters are MB, and they stand for Myers-Briggs. And it was a mother-daughter combination. Catherine Briggs started in the 1920s, building on Carl Jung's work. He knew of her work. She was the first person who wanted to have a mainstream application of his work. So it was really the first time in the world that anybody tried to use personality preferences to help people make career decisions. Because before that, fundamentally, you did what your father did, because of course back then it was mainly men working. You did what your father did or your career choices were extremely class-driven. Okay, let's move on to the label issue. Some people don't like MBTI because they think it labels them. Yes, it obviously does. A useful analogy, however, might be if you think about your favourite room in the house. So my favourite room in the house is my bedroom. I do a lot of work on my bed. It looks out on a garden. I love the connection with the garden. My least favourite room in the house is the laundry. If you look at MBTI, the bedroom is really where you are most comfortable, where you are most in the flow, in the zone. MBTI does not mean you don't change your behaviour. So yes, of course, I go into the laundry. I don't like the laundry. I find it quite soul-destroying, but I go into the laundry. And probably from a work point of view, the example would be me working on resumes and making sure I dot the I's and cross the T's. I don't really want to do that all day but I quite happily and skillfully go into that laundry. At a minimum, somebody talked to me about this a while ago, and it's always stuck with me. At a minimum, you could argue that those 16 types are just a description of behavior preferences, and that that's no different than the DSM-5, which is the uh, American Psychiatric Association's description of mental disorders. If you've ever looked at that, they will have a series of behaviors that they put underneath a label. The label might be, borderline personality disorder, and underneath they'll have a series of behaviours. So you could argue at a minimum MBTI is no different than that. It's a useful catch-all of behaviours that are put under a label. And finally, if you're really sceptical, there's a guy called Dr Dario Nardi, wonderful guy. I went to one of his conferences in Brisbane a few years ago. And since 2006, he's focused on hands-on brain research. He uses real-time EEG technology to establish the link between the parts of the brain that light up when somebody's in the zone or in the flow doing an activity that matches with their MBTI preferences. If you just Google him, he has lots of information, interesting content and videos. And at the moment, he's producing content for a new book and he's slowly releasing it on LinkedIn. I had a look at his work on ENTP, which is my profile, and I found it even more fascinating. So perhaps explore that as well. Today I'm going to look at ENTJs, and if there was a phrase that you could use to sum them up, it would be, everything's fine, I'm in charge. ENTJs are natural leaders and organisation builders. They conceptualise and theorise readily, 
and translate possibilities into plans to achieve short-term and long-term objectives. If we break down the four letters of an ENTJ, it stands for extroverted, intuitive, thinking and judging. Extroverted people are those who are energised by time spent with others. Intuitive indicates a person who focuses on ideas and concepts rather than facts and details. Thinking people are those who make their decisions based on analysis and reason rather than feelings and values. And finally, judging people are those who prefer to be planned and organised rather than spontaneous and flexible. At the core of an ENTJ, they are intellectually curious. They seek new ideas and they like complex problems. They conceive possibilities and create the insights they use to make decisions and plans. They're natural leaders who often take charge no matter where they are. Statistically, they're one of the rarer types. They're only 2% of the general population and only 1% of women, 3% of men. They're more likely than average to suffer cardiac problems. They're amongst the least likely of all types to believe in a higher spiritual power. They're sensitive to issues of power and they seek positions and people of influence. And their personal values include home and family, achievement, creativity and learning. They're commonly found in careers in executive management, senior technical roles and management consulting. As you can imagine, there's lots of famous ENTJs. They include Margaret Thatcher, Kamala Harris, Napoleon Bonaparte, Douglas MacArthur, Harrison Ford and Quentin Tarantino. Now, of course, I'm most interested in where each type finds career satisfaction. And I think there's a wonderful book called Do What You Are by Tiger and Barron, which outlines for each type the 10 key drivers for career satisfaction. And today I'm just going to mention five of them. To an ENTJ, career satisfaction means doing work that lets them engage in long-range strategic planning, creative problem-solving, and the generation of innovative and logical approaches to many problems. The work needs to give them the opportunity to advance within the organisation and to increase and demonstrate their competence. The work needs to be exciting, challenging, and competitive, where they are in the public eye and where their accomplishments are seen recognised and fairly compensated. The work needs to let them manage others using logical and objective standards and policies that use people's strengths but without having to deal daily with interpersonal squabbles. And finally, this work needs to give them opportunities to meet and interact with a variety of other capable, interesting and powerful people. In the workplace, ENTJs are likely to be conceptual and global thinkers. They're analytical, logical, and objectively critical. They're decisive, clear, and assertive. They're innovative theorizers and planners, and they are articulate and quick-witted. If I turn to another book which I really, really value, there's a book called Working Together by Isaacson and Behrens. It details for each type how they're likely to behave in the workplace and what the implications of that are. 
It's a little bit outside of my scope because I'm a career specialist rather than an executive coach. But I find for my own profile, I find the information really valuable. So what I'm going to do is take one element from each category and just talk it through. So when we look at the management style of an ENTJ, the management style is likely to be action-oriented. They are visionaries who communicate a vision of how the organisation can change and then they marshal the human and material forces to achieve these future goals and objectives. They typically take charge and command with such assurance that others usually follow easily. ENTJs expect others to autonomously and independently implement their outline plans. When it comes to the values of an ENTJ, they value the theoretical. They want insight, understanding, comprehension, knowledge, genius and precision. Their attitude, the basic attitude of an ENTJ, is that they are always open to new ideas, but they tend to be sceptical of their validity until logically proven otherwise. From a skills point of view, they're skilled at analysis. They can recognise conceptual differences and they can create categories. As strategists, they map out all the feasible events in advance, developing an action agenda, a well-thought-out outline and an overall scheme. They build models, often theoretical ones, to solve complex problems, enigmas and riddles and get people to work towards goals. Not surprisingly, ENTJs enjoy bringing an organisation to a point where it delivers superior performance. Their driving force is that ENTJs have a high need for achievement. However, achievement is typically measured by standards set by them, not by society or the organisation. Their achievement need is reflected in a constant drive for competency and an ever-present, even if hidden, fear of failure. When it comes to their energy direction, of course, given these skills, values and attitudes, ENTJs direct all of their energy towards the acquisition of knowledge, competencies and implementation of their vision of how things can be. From an authority orientation, ENTJs want the person in charge to be knowledgeable and competent. Authority is not granted by position. They will question authority and test it, especially in their own area of expertise. Of all the NTs, the ENTJ is the most likely to take charge. And finally, from a blind spots and pitfalls point of view, ENTJs find bureaucracy frustrating, with protocol and paperwork a waste of time that could be best spent planning. And they can sometimes overlook the human element in their drive for action that will achieve the goal. Now, all that's very serious and very important. So, as I said, let's finish off with a little bit of fun. It again is from the Quora group that I mentioned earlier, who seem to just have an amazing knowledge of each MBTI type. And in this analysis, they talk about what would an ENTJ be like if they liked you? ENTJs hate wasting time. So, if they like you, they'll probably just let you know by directly asking you out. They'll try and find out who you are by asking you questions and making direct eye contact. Your life and goals will be fascinating to them. They'll want to know your hopes and dreams as they try to figure out if you're someone they see as being there for them in the long term. Making sure your future lines up with theirs is critical to them. They don't like wasting time on a relationship they know won't amount to anything in the long run. 
They won't worry about beating around the bush or games to get your attention. They will be intentional and direct about spending time with you. Where to from here? I think you've picked up that I think it's really important that you know your profile, but I equally think it's important that you do it properly. That's the ENTP in me speaking. There's no point going on to one of those online websites. I cannot tell you the number of people who proudly announce that they're a blah and not a blah. And when you look at their behavior, you would think the exact opposite. So book in with an accredited practitioner. Do the MBTI Step 2 interpretive report because that will not just show you your hardwired preferences, which is what the standard MBTI report does. It will also show you where your actual behavior diverges from your preferences. And that is usually because of either life choices you've made or the circumstances of your life. If I think about myself, I will show up often as feeling behavior, even though I'm clearly a thinker. And I've concluded that it was because I was brought up a very strong Catholic And so from my earliest memories, I was taught and encouraged to think about other people and care about other people. Obviously, I'm here to talk about MBTI in the career space. I think it's so valuable to help you make career decisions, decide future directions and just be happier at work. But I also find it so useful in my personal life. The first time I went shopping with my husband, for example, I couldn't believe how methodical and systematic and, to me, tedious he was as he walked up and down the supermarket aisles. But I didn't judge him because I thought, well, that's typically how a sensing person would shop. So I didn't judge him. I just made sure I didn't go shopping with him and I'd meet him for coffee afterwards or send him out on his own. So I think what MBTI can allow you to do is not just know yourself and know others, but respect others. And that's pretty special, I think. Thanks for listening. As always, there's lots of information in the show notes. Next episode, because I am still struggling a bit to get around, I'll continue down the Myers-Briggs path. And I'd like to finish with my hashtag. I do think it's a great hashtag. Hashtag, why not be happy at work? Bye. Bye.